Welcome to The Unanswered Point. I'm Nick, the one with the points to make living here in grand anonymity. I could be wearing Cookie Monster footy pajamas. You don't even know. You don't know my life. Today, we are talking some NFL, looking at the new schedule changes proposed by the newest potential CBA, and how a 17-game season and or extra playoff teams could change the NFL landscape. We'll continue last episode's series on draft needs and address the rest of the AFC West, that's a tongue twister, after taking a look at the Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs last episode. Going to look ahead to the NBA playoffs and whether any team in the Eastern Conference has a shot at stopping Milwaukee's seemingly faded path to the NBA Finals. And finally, to cap the show, we'll discuss the embarrassment that has been MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred's handling of the Houston Astros cheating scandal. These are your unanswered points. Beautiful ladies and beautiful gentlemen, let's begin by chatting about the newest proposed collective bargaining changes that have been presented in the National Football League, proposed either by the owners or the players to be included as part of the new CBA. Now, some of the player-driven ideas for this go-around have included the elimination of suspensions for positive marijuana tests, as well as lowering the number of players that need to be tested and the number of times that a player can be tested inside of one season. Uh, Ensuring players receive a portion of gambling revenue, as the NFL is now receiving a large portion of revenue from sports gambling as it has become nationally legal. Players have also proposed alterations to training camp that include limiting the number of joint practices, which have been very strongly frowned upon by quite a few players and decried even as completely useless by quite a few and reducing the limit on number of days in pads down to a little over two weeks maybe 15 or 16 days where players are required to be in full pads with teams being effectively punished for actually breaking that stipulation but that's on the player side the more interesting parts that people have been talking about And again, none of this is finalized yet. Uh, I believe the owners actually have uh, finalized their own version of the CBA and sent that forward to the NFL Players Association to have them review it. If it passes through the uh, NFLPA with a certain uh, majority, it then goes forward to the actual NFL NFL players themselves who are guaranteed a vote, and then a simple majority would be required to pass it. But the owner's additions, the owner's part of the proposal – everyone has been talking about is twofold. Number one, increasing the number of regular season games from 16 to 17, which players have repeatedly staunchly stated will not happen without at the very least reducing the number of preseason games. This change would happen no sooner no sooner than the 2021 regular season. So for those hoping or for those expecting that this would happen immediately in this following season, sorry about you. Owners would also, of course, increase player revenue in exchange, as has been discussed, either adding an additional game check or increasing the pool of player revenue on the whole by 15 to 2%. The other major proposed change from the owner's side would actually take place immediately starting this season in 2021, and that is the addition of an extra wildcard team to each conference's playoff pool. 
and the removal of the first round bye for the second seed in each conference, leaving only the top record in the AFC and the top record in the NFC with a bye for the first round of playoff games and giving us six total games in that first weekend. Now, for both of these changes, actually, primarily with the first one, but for, for both of them, actually, one of the biggest talking points among players, as it has been for several years, is the issue of player safety. Many players have decried the NFL, come out strongly against them, and criticized them for being hypocrites, for making this big initiative over the past 10-ish years uh, in the wake of you know the way our culture is now and the way that some people respond to a violent sport like football, and the way that the league has talked about addressing the issue of player safety, especially with the advent of studies about CTE and the issues that a lot of players have upon retiring from the league. Now, with players coming out so strongly against this, as I said uh, just a little bit earlier, they have been saying adamantly, if you are going to add a 17th game, there has to, at the bare minimum, be a reduction in the number of preseason games. The players have suggested, if I remember correctly, over the past few years, minimum to reduce that to two or two to two games total in the preseason, or to eliminate the preseason entirely, which the league is not willing to do. And let's be honest, that's almost entirely due to revenue. While preseason games count for nothing, they essentially and effectively become just a, a breeding ground for some of these lower tier players to maybe get a little bit of a boost trying to make the roster or for teams hoping to see their hot young quarterback prospect or their newest draft pick get in get his feet wet and try to get a little bit of a taste of the nfl but for most teams especially some of these playoff teams these preseason games are not necessarily the most instrumental in what their season is going to look like with player safety again being such a big deal and players calling out the league again for their hypocrisy asking hey we need to we need to lower the number of helmet to helmet hits we need to make rules more offensively friendly we need to make rules protecting defenseless receivers protecting quarterbacks and then to turn right around and say hey with all of that with the amount of time that you put your bodies on the line the amount of plays in a game that you're smashing head to head helmet to helmet in contention with other grown adult men let's throw another game onto that Let's add a 17th game for what reason? It's the owners. There's one reason, one reason only, it's money. They're driven by additional revenue. And at face value, who can blame them? The NFL is far and away the most profitable sports league in the United States. One game, just one extra game, can legitimately increase league revenue by hundreds of millions of dollars if you're talking about adding another 16 games because you know two teams into each game 32 teams across the league adding 16 extra games into a potential week 17. again that is only at face value because once you start to delve further into this the idea of player safety on top of something that i feel like this issue comes up in a lot of sports the idea of for the nfl in particular raising the number of games or more specifically in the nba in the nba and major league baseball reducing the number of games maybe this shouldn't necessarily be the most important factor when talking about scheduling changes but historically a lot of nfl nba mlb any sports records and the way that 
history and numbers show players over time is based on having a certain number of games in a season. Obviously, for the NFL, that's a little bit different as the league used to have a 12-game season moving to a 16-game season later on. But that is, I believe, at least something that needs to be considered, especially when you start thinking about how prolific some of these new offenses are. If you have a guy who's able to be healthy and you know plays uh, you know, 10, 15 years and suddenly has an extra 10, 15 games on his resume over the course of his career, that guy's if he's an elite-level player, he's going to be able to put up quite a bit of numbers. Obviously, this is kind of small potatoes compared to the issue of player safety, but I believe it is something that needs to at least be thought of. On the player side of it, while players have been far more than mildly opposed to this idea, a lot of the the bigwigs, if you will, from the NFLPA have come to the players over the past several years and at least tried to open them to this idea of a 17-game season, specifically because labor discussions between the commissioner's office and the NFL Players Association have been so contentious over the past 10 years or so, almost entirely because of the incredibly vitriolic and hostile relationship between NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell and NFL Players Association head DeMorris Smith. As such, as a result of this, a lot of the changes that players have wanted have not been able to pass or have had a very, very hard time getting through this initial phase of owner proposal. The NFLPA has come to players over the, again over the past several years and again this year very strongly to tell them, while you might not be staunchly in favor of this idea of adding another game to the schedule, the league very clearly, and the owners in particular, very clearly wants this to happen, to have a 17th game onto the schedule, and using that as leverage to get some of these other things that they want, higher minimum salaries, especially for veterans, uh, relaxed off-season work rules when it comes to uh, some of these uh, voluntary workouts and how much time you are required to spend in the actual stadium or at the practice facility, all these different kinds of things. And players have said, at the bare minimum, minus one or two preseason games, and there would have to be at least one additional game check. But the NFLPA lawyers are trying to get them to think a little, a little past that into using this as leverage for some of their additional proposals. Now, heading forward, it's hard to say how the playoff change in particular will actually affect the season. Uh, if you look at it from this, just this past year, uh, looking towards the NFL standings, a team like the Pittsburgh Steelers, which was, you know, without Ben Roethlisberger, spent much of the season without uh, them, without him as their starting quarterback, with Mason Rudolph and <laughs> and uh, and the Duck, their third string quarterback, being up there and not doing maybe the best job trying to pull that team along. The Pittsburgh Steelers still wound up at 8-8, eight and eight, partially because of an excellent coaching job from coach Mike Tomlin, and as a result, would have found themselves in the playoff hunt. They would have found themselves in that last spot and would have been playing, I believe, the Kansas City Chiefs in that first round of the postseason. Now, obviously, Kansas City was a buzzsaw, wound up rolling through everybody and winning the Super Bowl, but at the very least, this adds an extra team that an extra little spot for some of these teams to fight for because you always wind up seeing towards the end of the regular season, there, how many teams do we see in that 
eight and eight to to ten and six range that are all fighting for those last wild card spots, and inevitably someone winds up getting kicked out. Now, I can hear the people screaming from the rooftops. Well, there's already been teams that have gotten in that are seven and nine. They're already the teams we're looking at for wild cards are already very very flawed. Why on earth would we want to add another team? And I think that's a very valid point in you know for, to the negative of this uh, of this proposed playoff change, especially because if you look at uh, if you look at the NFC, this this little this little bubble we had going here because the the Vikings and the Eagles wound up being the two wildcard teams in that little bubble just behind them wound up being the LA Rams, the Chicago Bears, and the Dallas Cowboys. Two of whom I think could have been interesting teams. The Bears had no shot. Mitch Trubisky was did not have a strong season, especially continuing to develop under Matt Nagy. But the Rams and the Cowboys could have at least potentially made something interesting happen. However, that being said, I believe the point that we're already arguing, it's kind of like the uh, the college football playoff debate that people, you know, Joel Platt is one of these big proponents that says, don't expand it to eight teams because we're already talking about teams with flawed resumes when we're talking about adding more onto it. The thing that interests me more about this addition of a, a seventh team in each conference is not necessarily that extra wildcard spot. It's the fact that, and I believe I had someone bring this up to me the other day, it's the fact that that second seed would no longer have a bye week in that first round of the postseason. Uh, I believe someone had brought it up to me the other day that one of the biggest one of the biggest issues of this would come later on in the postseason because you know if, if the seeding system shakes out per, you know properly, it winds up being the one and the two seed in the conference championship game, and if that winds up being the case, while you might have the two best teams in the conference going at it, you also have one team with a little bit more rest than the other. Again, I think that's maybe more of a minor issue to deal with the system, but I do think it would create a lot more of a, a, a race, a rat race towards the end of the season. If you even think towards the end of this last year, between the Niners, Packers, and Saints, all fighting for that number one seed and all finishing with identical 13-3 and records, it would create this major push towards the end of the year to not rest your starters, to absolutely get in there and get that one buy that only only two teams in the whole league get, the one seed from each conference. I think it's an interesting idea going forward. I'm not sure that we can really try to project or speculate on the full effect of this playoff change until we actually see it in action. It's hard to say how these two combined might, you know, might add on to a season, but I think at the very least the NFL is an interesting place to be looking at right now when we're talking about, you know, especially with the advent of the XFL and the way that football is starting to change. I do at least appreciate the idea and the rationale behind the league trying to look at new ways that they can bring more interest and more revenue to the sport. Now, let's change gears here and continue our series on NFL draft needs with this year's draft only about two months or so away and the combine starting in just about a week. Now, since we looked at the Chiefs last episode, let's go ahead and swing around the rest of the AFC West, starting with the Los Angeles Chargers, who are picking at number six overall. The hot topic right now for them has been, are they going to take a quarterback? With the announcement that they would not be bringing Phillip Rivers back as their starting quarterback for next year, and 
his future still up in the air? Is he going to retire? Maybe take a backup job. Maybe start for one of these middle or lower tier teams. That leaves the Chargers in a very interesting position. At the top of the draft, obviously, assuming everything, and we talked about this last time, assuming everything is copacetic, the Bengals should be taking Joe Burrow with that number one pick. However, it becomes a little murky right after that. Even Mel Kuyper, in his uh, his Mock Draft 2.0 just earlier this week, he had Detroit all of a sudden not taking Jeff Akuda, the corner that everyone has been mocking to them for several weeks, if not months now, but instead had the Detroit Lions taking Tua Tagovailoa, the quarterback from Alabama, and moving on from Matt Stafford, who would potentially either be a bridge quarterback for one year or be traded onto another team. With Tua going number three, if that were to happen, it's almost a guarantee that at number five, the Miami Dolphins would be taking Justin Herbert from the University of Oregon. Now, Herbert is a very raw prospect, and in some of these earlier mocks, Herbert had been slated to be heading to the LA Chargers. He's a, a very raw talent, has all the measurables you want, great size, great arm strength, and would be would be that new franchise guy for a team like the Chargers that already has talent in place, especially in their outside weapons. Now, if this mock were to go how Kuiper had been talking about with Tua heading to Detroit and Herbert going to Miami, that leaves the Chargers hanging out to dry. The next quarterback, by a lot of people, is one of two people, and they've kind of been fighting for this four spot, either uh, Jacob Eason or it's been Jordan Love, who is from uh, Utah State. Now, Love is an interesting prospect in part because his year prior to this one was actually significantly better, and going into his final year there, he lost almost his entire offensive line, and several of his skill position players had changes along, along the coaching staff and dis, you know, decidedly had regression as a result of that. Now, a lot of these... A lot of these draft pundits and prospect gurus have not been knocking him for that. It was fairly obvious that the talent was just not around him. Uh, I believe they played LSU earlier in the year, and they just, uh, or at least several SEC teams, and clearly just didn't have the talent. They were outmatched. But I, I think with both Eason and with Love, neither is really a prospect that you can take all the way up here at number six. So if we're moving on from quarterback, if Herbert is not the pick or Tua somehow doesn't fall, which would honestly be shocking if he fell all the way to six, the next major need, in particular, for the LA Chargers is especially at offensive tackle, where a, a nicely slotted player, Jedrick Wills from the University of Alabama, is would generally, according to most mocks and according to to most prospect uh, projections, would be sitting here. The Chargers have had a huge need at tackle for a long time. Russell Okun is in the final year of his contract. Their tackles have, and their line in particular, has been a weakness for several years now. They haven't had a uh, pro football focus passing, pass blocking grade above, like even better than 26th since about 2014. Uh, their tackles combined for about 88 pressures on the year, which was the second most in the league, only behind the New York Jets. Part of the reason Phillip Rivers would have struggled in this last year was because of that additional pressure coming, especially off the edge. And Jedrick Wills, again, coming from Alabama, is a very athletic linchpin. He was a linchpin protector for Tua in his time at Alabama, and he can start at either side. So if 
heaven forbid, somehow Tua does wind up falling or the Chargers decide to package a couple picks, move up just a little bit, and try to take him, they could potentially look, if they if they find a way to keep their first-round pick, as the Chargers have sometimes made interesting draft day deals like this, if they find another way to package potentially other you know future first-round picks, keep their number six pick and find someone like Wills, or if they decide to hit the free agent market, find someone like a Tom Brady, or even just stick with Tyrod Taylor, their current backup, they are able to, to, to take a pick in Jedrick Wills, who is able to play both the left and right tackle and would be able to fit with just about any zone blocking scheme that they have. Now, there are other options here. They're lower on the list, but the Chargers are also losing several key free agents, especially running back Melvin Gordon and tight end Hunter Henry. Now, there's no running back that would be taken this high. The highest rated uh, running back prospect is DeAndre Swift, likely to go in maybe the mid-20s later in the first. And even with losing Gordon, Austin Eckler, who's been their backup for several years, is everything they need anyway. When when Gordon held out this last year and Eckler was the starter for the first handful of games, he was actually more productive than Melvin Gordon has been in really any phase of his career. And you're hard-pressed to find a single mock draft that has a tight end in the first round at all. So replacing Hunter Henry, especially in this first round, not really not really a path that they're going to go down. So it really comes down to, is a quarterback going to fall to them, whether it's Tua, again, unlikely, or more likely Justin Herbert, who would be a good developmental pick for them. And if not, you're looking at someone like Jedrick Wills. You're looking at Tristan Wirfs, the tackle from Iowa, or Makai Becton, the tackle from Louisville. Again, the quarterbacks have all over the place. Conventional wisdom said, Burrow, number one, two of five to Miami. Things have been changing, but I don't think it's been changing enough for Jordan Love or Jacob Eason to come up this high. Let's swing around to another part of the AFC West. Looking at now, strange to say it, but the Las Vegas Raiders, who have two first-round picks, looking at number 12 and number 19, which is the pick that they got as a result of their trade with Chicago, sending Khalil Mack over to Chicago, Illinois. Obviously, the Raiders have quite a few holes to, to fill. They've not really lived up to the excitement that they maybe had when John Gruden was hired as the head coach, and especially on the defensive side of the ball, they have quite a few issues to address. The biggest issues for them for a few years have been in the secondary, and there are no cornerbacks up this high after Jeff Okuda, especially not in this, this interesting mid-tier range. If they picked up a little higher, maybe they could trade up for Akuda. If they picked a little bit later, and we'll look at that at number 19, they could be looking at C.J. Henderson. But here at this first 12th spot, there's not really a quarterback that fits the need for them or fits the projection. Instead, I expect John Gruden, I don't, I don't feel like this is a, I don't feel like there's, you know, four, five, six, seven people to be looking at here. I feel like John Gruden is looking at whether he sticks with Derek Carr or decides to pick up one of these free agent quarterbacks, looking at someone to bring in who is a true number one receiver. Now, obviously, they have one of their franchise cornerstones in Josh Jacobs, drafted as a running back last year out of the University of Alabama. He's a, he's a cornerstone going forward. He's one of their biggest guys. They got a huge breakout season from tight end Darren Waller, replacing the departing Jared Cook, who headed to New Orleans. But... 
The team was dealt a major blow because their receiving core was expected to be much deeper when they acquired Antonio Brown in last year's offseason, slotting in Tyrell Williams behind him. Obviously, the rest is history. Everyone knows what happened with Antonio Brown and his subsequent departure from the team. And the offense never recovered. Derek Carr the year before, especially late in the year, had started coming on a lot stronger started to really throw the ball well in John Gruden's offense and seemed to finally be understanding the offensive scheme that Gruden was trying to put forward for him. But with Brown departing, they never were able to recover this last season and get back on the track they would have liked. I personally have have faith in Derek Carr. When we last saw the, the offense at as close to full strength as it could be before he had the terrible broken leg injury, Derek Carr was an MVP candidate that season. He has the talent to make this work. But we've seen with the Raiders, as we started to see, you know, for such a long time with the Bengals, a quarterback who who is getting all of the blame and getting none of the benefit of the doubt because the team is not able to put talent around him. But in today's NFL society, especially fan society, well, they're not, they're not getting it done. Must be the quarterback's fault. I have faith in Derek Carr and I hope they stick with him. And as such, here at this 12th spot, I would like for them, and I think they will be adding, a top-tier weapon for him, someone like, potentially if he's around, Oklahoma's C.D. Lamb at wide receiver, or more likely if Lamb is gone by, you know, to someone like maybe the New York Jets, Jerry Judy, the receiver from the University of Alabama, who was the hottest receiver prospect this entire last year. One of the best receivers in the country didn't wind up winning the Boletnikov. I believe lost that out to Justin Jefferson from LSU. But one of the most stable prospects we've seen in a long time, almost reminded me of Sammy Watkins when he came out of Clemson and just how polished Jerry Judy is as a receiver. Not the elite speed that perhaps his teammate Henry Ruggs has, but still a very fast player, able to go up and get it in traffic, a strong route runner, great hands, everything that Tua needed him to be at Alabama and looking to be everything that Antonio Brown never wound up being. There aren't a lot of other strong picks that I can see here, especially with some of these other offensive tackles going a little earlier in the round. And while the Raiders could potentially be looking to replace one of their two tackles, they did see improvement this year especially from colton miller who they drafted not too long ago out of ucla and they did boast one of the strongest interior offensive lines in the entire league in this last season another potential option here and we'll we'll look at this a little bit between this and the 19th pick given that it's the raiders another option is packaging these two picks to move up for a quarterback at a higher spot if they're not smitten with Derek Carr and don't choose to pursue a free agent when the market opens on March 18th. And there are quite a few options. A few teams have, or I'm I'm sorry, a few reports have had uh, the Raiders potentially looking at Tom Brady, potentially offering him 60 million over two years. We've yet to see if that has any substance to it, but there are still other quarterbacks out there that the, I keep wanting to say, LA only because I hear the L in Las in Las Vegas, but the Las Vegas Raiders, that'll take some time to get used to. With John Gruden and particularly under Mark Davis, who learned quite a bit from his dad, from Al Davis, they want to make the splashy move. And if they see a quarterback that they really like his makeup and like his leadership, like his talent, whether it's I mean it's it's 
again, I hope desperately that the Bengals would not would not drop their pick here for a couple of firsts. But if one of these teams is willing to move back and the Raiders want to move up for a Tagovailoa, for a Herbert, I could potentially see them packaging these two picks and moving up to try to get a guy that perhaps they have a little bit more faith in than Derek Carr. Looking at their second pick at number 19, their two biggest defensive needs are at cornerback and at linebacker, the two primary spots to look to. And there are a couple easy names right around this area. Kenneth Murray, who we talked about last year for both, for, for really the Chiefs, but also potentially for San Francisco to look at. Kenneth Murray could go here earlier in the first at pick 19, the linebacker from Oklahoma, and would replace Vontaz Perfect, who coming over from Cincinnati to the Raiders, was it felt like he was on the field for five minutes and was suddenly suspended again for the season after the joke of a career that he's had, being one of the most immature and dangerous players the league has seen in a long time, a guy that honestly probably no longer belongs on a an NFL roster. Murray would be a logical replacement to perfect, as well as, again, if we're looking at quarterback, potentially C.J. Henderson, a name from the University of Florida. It's possible Dallas could be looking at Henderson at number 17 with Byron Jones, one of the best corners on the market, potentially leaving in free agency. And if Dallas is looking to have Henderson possibly replace Byron Jones, although some of these mocks have had him, uh, or have had, excuse me, have had them looking at uh, Xavier McKinney instead to fill in one of their safety spots, Henderson could potentially be gone here, and Kenneth Murray would be a very strong pick. Well, he'd slot in as a starter immediately, 6'2", 243 pounds, very athletic linebacker. He's much more than capable of rushing the passer. Murray wasn't asked to cover a lot in college, but he has the athletic ability to do so. He projects maybe more as, uh, as an outside linebacker than someone in the middle, perhaps someone, one of these rangy outside backers in a 3-4 kind of scheme, and he will succeed on a team that allows him to play downhill and just blow up blockers. That's what he wants to do. Henderson, on the flip side, to help their pass defense, would help the Raiders immensely in the most direct fashion. Some teams opt to help their, their uh, pass defense by addressing the pass rush instead, but with a very surprising and strong rookie year from Max Crosby, they now need a true lockdown corner behind that front seven. Henderson is a very fluid cover corner, flips his hips very well, and has good instincts when it comes to jumping some of these routes capable of playing man or zone in a multitude of schemes and would fill out a corner group that includes Daryl Worley and Trayvon Mullen, two players who have struggled with consistency and really could benefit from a deeper positional room. Now, swinging over to our last team in the AFC West is the Denver Broncos. Picking at number 15 here in the 2020 draft, and there really is only one great need for them to have to address here, at least in terms of the players that will be available at this spot, and that's offensive tackle. For anyone who's been watching Denver for the past several years, Garrett Bowles really, really needs to go. Garrett Bowles, a, a higher pick for them at tackle a few years ago, has led the league in holding penalties for three straight seasons. And now with Drew Locke as the quarterback of the future, his blindside has to be protected by someone more consistent for Denver to be able to return to relevancy. A lot of their strength 
in those years when Peyton Manning came over from the Colts was the fact that they were at least able to protect him, despite the fact that Manning had a, a noodle arm whenever he was coming off of his uh, his neck surgeries, he was still able to get off some of these shorter throws, especially because they were at least able to do a decent enough job of protecting him. And with Bowles, that has not been the case for any Denver quarterback over the past several years. Defense has not been one of their major issues, especially not one that needs to be addressed with their with their pick here. Probably could use some shoring up, but 12th in yards this last year, 10th in points. There are some holes that need to be filled, despite at least a solid performance this last season from their defense. Reports saying that the team does not expect to retain uh, Chris Harris in free agency, their far and away top cornerback, and the lack of health and progress and development from Bryce Callahan and Isaac Yadam, that makes cornerback a spot that could potentially be looked at here. Although, again, there's not really a fit here at this number 15 pick unless they want to reach up just a little bit and grab C.J. Henderson at the expense of keeping Bowles for another year. Denver also is expecting to maybe lose uh, defensive lineman Derek Wolf in free agency. So someone like A.J. Epinesa from Iowa makes sense. 6'6", 280, big, big end slash tackle, can kind of flip between multiple positions. Not a guy who's going to put up ridiculous sack numbers, but a consistent performer who can do multiple jobs on the defensive line. But my pick here, the likeliest to me, would be Josh Jones, the offensive tackle from the University of Houston, unless someone like Mekhi Becton falls. Jones is very athletic in the open field. You can see it on the tape. This could come into play very easily with Drew Locke's ability and his propensity to, to roll out of the pocket and run some of these bootleg plays. Jones is a guy who could fit very well into that scheme. Strong footwork, strong hands, which help him to maybe overcome assignments where he might be overmatched, which is a case that could distinctly happen in the AFC West playing against guys like, excuse me, Joey Bosa, Melvin Ingram, Max Crosby, Frank Clark, if we're talking about the Chiefs. These are all prime edge rushers that can flip to either side that this would be an issue for protecting someone like Drew Locke. And in a division that the Chiefs are expected to dominate for a long time, some of these teams really have to shore up their protection of these younger quarterbacks that they either currently have or may be taking if they expect to dethrone Kansas City from their division crown. Jones does need to work a little bit on his angle control and his technique to actually become elite. He often relies more on his pure athleticism than on great technique to actually overcome some of these uh, stronger assignments. Again, Drew Locke had a very strong rookie year coming on later in the season when Joe Flacco obviously was simply not getting it done. And Drew Locke showed, at least with his starts in 20, the 2019 regular season, that he is capable of handling this offense moving forward. With a little bit of a down season for Philip Lindsay as they started to trade off and had a little bit more of a running back by committee. Um, Denver also taking in the first round last year, tight end Noah Fant from the University of Iowa, who they expect to be a major contributor moving forward. Um, one of the under-the-radar better receiving seasons of this rookie class, receiver or tight end combined, as some of these maybe higher or bigger name receivers um, wound up having vaguely the same stats that he did. We only got great, maybe great receiving seasons out of A.J. Brown and D.K. Metcalf. But Fant finishing with well over 500 yards, had three touchdowns on the year, and started to develop at least a little bit of a rapport 
with Drew Locke. The last couple games only having a handful of targets, but the word out of some of their practices and some of uh, even their, their early OTAs and training camp was that the two of them had some kind of connection that perhaps just wasn't able to materialize later in the year. Now, the team in the Denver Broncos moving on from Emmanuel Sanders and now relying on uh, Cortland Sutton, who did have an emergent year at wideout for the Denver Broncos. Sutton is going to be a major piece for Drew Locke, but it could be stated that the Broncos would be looking to add an extra piece to their receiving core if they don't have a lot of faith in some of these lower-tier guys. Deshaun Hamilton being a guy that maybe had a good few moments this last year, but once you even get past Hamilton, who's not even close to a house name, there's not another proven outside threat for the Broncos. So looking at someone like Henry Riggs or Jerry Judy, or C.D. Lamb, if one of these guys starts to fall, because inevitably at least one of them will go ahead of this 15th pick, it is possible for the Broncos to also take a look at receiver here to try to add another young, strong target for Drew Locke to have on the outside. But if I'm really looking at their needs, if I'm looking at what needs to be done to ensure Drew Locke's success moving forward, Bowles has to go, and tackle needs to be the pick here. As far as I am aware, um, oh, excuse me. There has not been a lot of buzz coming from the Denver Broncos about taking a receiver at this pick. However, everyone is, you know, everyone knows around this time we start to see smoke screens from just about every team. Uh, quite a few mocks, not not even from ESPN, for some, some of these other uh, other draft people, have shown one of these tackles likely going to Denver. And that, to me, is still the likely pick. However, again, keep an eye out in case they decide to look at one of these top-flight receivers and potentially move on to one of them. Let's swing over to the NBA now and look at the Eastern Conference leading Milwaukee Bucks, currently sitting at 47-8, and eight, winners of eight of their last ten. Now, obviously, the story of the season for Milwaukee this year has been the domination of Giannis Antetokounmpo as maybe now in this 2021, uh, or excuse me, 2020 season, emerging as potentially the best player in the NBA, despite a great 35-year-old showing from LeBron James, despite people still siding with Kawhi Leonard, despite the load management issues. Giannis now becoming far and away the league leader in PER. That's player efficiency rating, for some who might not know. Almost doubling his number of three-point attempts per game, trying to force defenders out to guard him after last season's playoff loss to the Toronto Raptors. And Toronto, especially with Kawhi Leonard on Giannis showing, the way to get to him being force him to shoot. Now Giannis obviously tried to shore that up this last offseason, especially with the team acquiring Kyle Korver, one of the most prolific shooters in NBA history, to help Giannis try to work on that jumper. Now, this well, part of their roster, and by part of the roster, I mean Chris Middleton, has not gotten the respect that he deserves throughout this season. Because all I hear for much of this year is, well, 
Giannis is doing all of this without a lot of help. He's a lock for MVP because, you know, LeBron has another superstar and Kawhi has another superstar. And Giannis is just doing this all by himself. Excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, Chris Middleton was still an all-star, is having a 20-point, five-rebound, four-assist-per-game season, and is shooting a career-high almost 44% from three-point range. I'm not saying that Chris Middleton is a superstar or even a star, but Chris Middleton is an incredibly, he's an incredibly important piece for this team that makes this entire offense surrounded, you know, surrounding Giannis work. If they don't have some of these knockdown shooters, Middleton in particular, also a great three, uh, free throw shooter sitting at 90% among the highest in the NFL. If they don't have someone like Middleton, this offense does not work for them. Chris Middleton, I believe, is one of these guys that's going to be huge for them in a big postseason run, but is not perhaps getting the due that he deserves. I saw the, the interesting, interesting meme the other day that uh, the the All Star game was somehow able to able to even still keep uh, Kobe alive because they showed pictures of, of Chris Middleton from certain angles and just the kind of the the profile that he struck just reminded people of Kobe Bryant, which I thought was kind of just a, a cool little homage to him that people notice. Uh, and again, the league did a, a fantastic job in their remembrance of Kobe in said game. Some of the, the Bucks' other major pieces, at least when it comes to filling out the depth of their roster, because the Bucks, it, it's not simply Giannis. They are they not only have the best point differential currently in NBA history, but their team defense has been as good as anybody in the league for much of this season. Dante DiVincenzo, a second-year player, young guy who has been a major piece for them this year and was looked to maybe be moved at the trade deadline as other teams were looking to perhaps acquire him. DiVincenzo has doubled his scoring and rebounding here in his second season in the NBA, went from, almost, from about 26% from three-point range to almost 35% and has been one of their most improved players coming into this season. Now, as I said earlier, Kyle Korver, their, their acquisition of him, has been one of their biggest moves, maybe not in terms of pure on-court production, but he has been at, Korver has been absolutely invaluable in helping develop Giannis's jumper because while it does still look a little bit ugly and he still has kind of wonky mechanics, what do you expect? He's seven feet tall and he's got arms that are you know longer than a car. While it is still wonky, he is getting more consistency in it, which is the biggest thing adding to his offensive arsenal. This was starting to be the case over the past several years between Giannis and Ben Simmons. Are they going to be able to take that next step without acquiring a more consistent outside jumper? We've watched Simmons, and we'll talk about him a little bit later, not be able to move on and not actually be able to add this extra piece to his game, despite the fact that teams clearly key in on it. Giannis instead decided to isolate that, decided this is a part of my game that is so weak, it, it, it exploits the rest of my incredible strengths. So I'm going to shore that up, and Corver has been huge in that. Both the Lopez brothers, Robin and Brooke, adding length at the room, and Brooke Lopez in particular, adding value as a stretch five who makes space for the Greek freak, despite Brooke Lopez may be shooting just under 30% from three. The threat is still there, and Giannis has shown improvement as a passer to be able to get it out to him. Now, the discussion is not just about Milwaukee. It's what teams are going to be able, if any, to stop the railroad that Milwaukee seems to be on en route to the NBA Finals. And the hot team right now 
for just about everyone has been the Toronto Raptors, one of the surprise teams of the season after losing Kawhi Leonard, winning the title last year, Kawhi heads over to the Clippers. No one expected the Raptors to just drop off a cliff and suddenly be a lottery team. People still expected them to be a playoff team, but the way it is, is at right now, the Raptors sit at second in the Eastern Conference with a record of 40-15, and 15, winning nine of their last ten games coming into the All-Star break. Now, obviously, still seven games behind Milwaukee, not really in striking distance for that number one seed, but the Raptors getting possibly after Pascal Siakam winning most improved player last year, there have been people making a case for him to win it again this season after jumping from a rotation or a role player to maybe the second or third best option on the team last year behind Kawhi Leonard, to now Kawhi leaves, Siakam steps up, and is having far and away the best season of his entire career, scoring well over 23 points a game, having a little bit of injury concerns here and there. But he, along with Kyle Lowry, both being all-stars, helping to drive the engine of the Toronto Raptors, obviously being able to retain guys like Fred Van Vliet, Mark Saul, OG Ananobi, who basically missed last year's entire title run with different injuries. Toronto is the team right now to be looking at for the Bucs to potentially be worried about. It's it's almost a, a Spurs-like kind of thing if you look at it right now, that the Spurs, even when they've been out-talented by a lot of these teams in past playoff runs, even in some of the years with Tim Duncan, and Mono Ginobili and some of these guys, the Spurs were always a threat to somehow overcome teams with a higher talent level than them. And that's what the Raptors are starting to feel like right now. They're a team that's incredibly well coached under Nick Nurse having come there in, uh, this is now his second season, I believe. And you can see some of these guys that people did not expect to be huge, huge pieces. Siakam, Kyle Lowry, uh, Fred Van Vliet, Norman Powell, OG Nobi, none of these guys were, oh, the, this is a, a top five pick, a guy who's a, a transformational, transcendent kind of piece, piece. None of these guys were that. And yet, with Nick Nurse in under uh, Dwayne Casey before him and under the tutelage of uh, team president Masai Ujiri, the team has consistently been able to develop talent and get the proper pieces in place over the past several years, guys like Marc Gasol and Serge Ibaka, to help fill out the roster particularly in their front court, despite losing someone like Jonas Valanciunas in that Gasol trade, they have been able to put the pieces in place to have continued success despite going all in on a trade for Kawhi Leonard last season. Now, it was obviously heartbreaking at the time to lose someone like DeMar DeRozan, and you could see in the, the interview answers and a lot of these uh, behaviors from Kyle Lowry that the team, and he in particular, were not happy with it. The reports coming out, you know, Kawhi had showed up. He said, hey, buy in, just be with me for one year, and let's just see what we can do. They obviously go on to win the championship, and now that winning culture has stayed in Toronto. Now, it remains to be seen what happens in the postseason. Toronto, strong on their defensive rotation throughout a lot of this season, and maybe not the strongest perimeter defenders. Pascal Siakam, a a strong individual defender, maybe not a guy that's going to be able to hold with Giannis for the entire game. OG Ananobi, maybe not having the size to do so. And beyond that, you have guys like Norm Powell, Fred Van Vliet, who are both shooting guards and are not going to slide down to defend a seven foot ball handler. 
Rondé Hollis Jefferson, a little bit of a, a deeper player for them, only playing about 20 minutes a game, but still in their rotation. Patrick McCaw, some of these guys, McCaw in particular, coming over from Golden State last year. You're not going to see these guys be able to hold with Giannis for much of this, much of a series if they are able to play. And that's what it'll boil down to come postseason time. Will Toronto have the pieces to be able to defend Giannis in the places that he needs to be defended? Or are they going to try to run some kind of interesting different zone, run multiple taller front court defenders, and try to force Giannis in to, to contest some of these shots? Because if he's able to, if they decide to just sag off and he's able to hit even a handful of these deep perimeter shots, Toronto does not have an answer for him. Outside of the Raptors, we're looking at the Boston Celtics, a team much more well-equipped to potentially handle a, a player like the Greek Freak. Incredible depth at their perimeter defenders, at least towards the top end of their rotation. And one, you know, let's face it, once it gets to playoff time, most teams are only running eight-man rotations anyway. But when the Celtics can run out, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, and Gordon Hayward, you have four different guys that are all able to body up, if not hang with him, because some of them obviously are, are different as individual defenders, are all at least able to body up Giannis and force him into shots he might not want. Gordon Hayward, finally, after I believe now this, uh, just another year removed away from that terrible leg injury he suffered a few years ago, Gordon Hayward now finally being able to emerge into the player that the Celtics expected him to be when they acquired him from Utah. And the piece that I wish more people were talking about, and some are, but transitioning from Kyrie Irving to Kemba Walker as their point guard has changed the entire dynamic of this team. And and I, and, and this has been a consistent, a consistent rhetoric and a consistent narrative for a lot of big-time TV NBA analysts that I've seen over basically Kyrie Irving's entire career that people make excuses for him because he, quote-unquote, gets buckets, because he is a, a strong offensive player who can take over a game on his own. And I have never personally been a fan of Kyrie Irving's game, not just in terms of his pure on-court production, but his clear lack of a presence as a leader. His, his, va- his value started to be overinflated because he won a title in Cleveland entirely, almost entirely on the shoulders of LeBron James. I won't fully discredit Kyrie. He obviously still had a strong offensive season. He helped take ball handling duties away from LeBron when he needed rest. He he hit the huge shot in game seven against Golden State. But that team is not even sniffing a finals appearance without LeBron James and with Kyrie Irving there, as evidenced by Kyrie leading that Cleveland team in the interim when LeBron had been in Miami. Now Kyrie moves to Boston makes the whole, you know, it's a whole big deal. They finally have the the true stud that they want. They have him. They have Gordon Hayward. This is the team. This is the talent. This is what they're going to do. And you noticed in that first year with Kyrie in Boston, when he was hurt, the team actually performed better and making their playoff run. And you got to see Jalen Brown develop another year. You got to see the emergence of Jason Tatum as a rookie, as a star offensive player, his dunk on LeBron in that postseason being one of the highlights of the entire NBA year. And then in the next year, Kyrie comes back and the team starts to regress because Kyrie, he's Carmelo Anthony. He's a ball-stopping perimeter player who is not a strong defender. Uh, Carmelo Anthony was, Melo was at least a strong rebounder. And Kyrie doesn't even have that. Not, I also don't think he's nearly the passer that people think he is. 
But because he has great handles and because he gets buckets, people say Kyrie is one of the top like two or three point guards in the NBA. And I honestly just don't see that. Part of your ability, whether even if we're just talking about these top 10, 15 lists, your ability to succeed on some of these lists and in your career is not just hinging on your ability to get buckets. I'm aware that that's the culture of basketball, but there's a lot of, there's a heck of a lot more to it than that. And when you are, the com- you have the complete lack of leadership that Kyrie Irving has when you saw his moodiness in Boston, when you saw him originally make his promise to uh, or his statement to to re-sign there and then being asked later on and he, you know, not wanting to even answer the question or accept it, not wanting to really accept blame for the fact that he was the leader of the team. And now seeing Kyrie transition over to Brooklyn, a team that could be interesting next season, and see the collapse that they're starting to have this la- this this year, some of the, th- the same th- things starting to happen. D'Angelo Russell leaving, but you start, to see, you start to see the development last year of some of these guys like Spencer Dinwiddie and Karis LeVert and, uh, and Jared Allen. Some of these guys really coming into their own as not just rotation pieces, but as key important starters. And now Kyrie coming over to Brooklyn, you see the exact same cases with Boston. Some of these guys starting to regress, some of their play not starting to really evolve to the next level that it should have. And Kemba Walker stepping in as that leadership piece with Kyrie leaving is an underrated part of the season that is not being talked about enough. Kemba Walker is an unselfish player that if you need any more evidence from that other than he played his entire career at this point in Charlotte, I don't know what to tell you. Kemba gave Charlotte more than they ever deserved. And I'm not talking about the fan base, obviously, because the Charlotte Hornets have a strong fan base. They have dedicated, dedicated fanatics for people who are a fan of a team that clearly with Michael Jordan as the, the Michael Jordan of bad owners and, helping to ruin that franchise they deserve their due when i'm talking about kemba giving you know giving them more than they deserve i'm really just talking about the organization and particularly the front office but kemba walker coming to boston and becoming that that true that true leader and having a great first season just under 22 points a game still five assists and well over a 21 PER, again, player efficiency rating, shooting just shy of 40%. He has been a major piece for them in helping to stabilize some of these young players. Kemba is not, you know, he, he at least tries on defense more than Kyrie ever has in his entire career. And he not, he's not a selfish player. He doesn't always need the ball in his hands. And as such, you've seen Jason Tatum in this season start to evolve into the player that Boston Celtics fans expected him to be last year. And because of that, Boston now is one of the teams, especially coming on stronger over these past these past few weeks leading into the All-Star break, Boston is a team that can really give Giannis and the Bucks fits because they can run out a strong perimeter defense between Tatum, Jalen Brown, Gordon Hayward, and I didn't even get to fully mention Marcus Smart, one of the most underrated non-big names in the entire NBA. Marcus Smart is a point guard, effectively, right? Marcus Smart is not the biggest guy, 6'3", 220 pounds, but he is one of the most tenacious defenders you will ever see. Everyone likes to talk about Patrick Beverly because they're sitting in L.A. and because he he kind of gets some of these bigger profile games. He infamously had the feud with Russell Westbrook when Westbrook tore his, uh, tore his meniscus a few years ago. But Marcus Smart is almost every bit, if not more, the defender that Patrick Beverly is. 
in all of the same ways, gets up underneath you, is able to defend bigger, you know, nine, ten inches bigger guys than he is actually uh, himself, again, being only 6'3". He's an incredibly strong guy for his frame, is willing to take charges, a strong individual and help defender that fits well with the Celtics' uh, defensive scheme, being able to switch on a lot of these guys and being able to give a rest to some of their stronger offensive pieces like Tatum and Brown and just say, Marcus Smart can take this guy out of the game. Everything He can he can do everything in his power right now, and he will take this guy out of the game. Some of their front court depth, they're, you know, especially down on the block, maybe not being as strong as they would like. Robert Williams, a guy that they really have higher hopes for for the future, but is not a strong rotation piece as of yet. Ennis Cantor, an offensive player on some teams, one of the worst defensive players I've seen in the front court in probably the past 10 to 15 years in the NBA. And Daniel Tice, a younger player who is a strong, a strong, deeper piece for them, but that could be something you could potentially see exploited if Cantor and Tice have to come out and defend someone like a Brooke Lopez on the perimeter. That would be a way that perhaps the Bucks are able to exploit Boston. And then moving on to our final two teams. First, the Miami Heat. One of, again, maybe not a surprise, but the way that they're winning this year, surprising. Sitting at 35-20 and 20 on the season right now. And the Heat have been succeeding you know, despite the addition of Jimmy Butler, a lot of their success had been predicated on the evolution of two young, I believe, fully undrafted players, or at least G League players, in Kendrick Nunn and Duncan Robinson. Now, Kendrick Nunn started the year incredibly hot, averaging over 20 points a game for his first several games, has cooled off a bit back down to about 15 points a game, but has started um, almost every game for them this season one of the stronger shooters on their team and one of the underrated threats of this Miami Heat team, sitting around 35%, but was developed very well in the G League. And the same for Duncan Robinson, a guy who became an elite three-point shooter for them and um, sitting at about 43% on the season, also almost a 90% free throw shooter. Both unheralded, unknown names coming from the G League and playing huge minutes for them as well as a young guy, the rookie that they just drafted this last year, in Tyler Hero. The future is very bright in Miami, especially with Jimmy Butler coming to Miami is honestly one of, you know, even Kawhi and Anthony Davis and some of these other moves considered, Jimmy Butler is almost as big of a deal to Miami as those because the, the seamless fit between Jimmy Butler and Pat Riley as the overlord of this franchise is almost perfect. The reports kept coming out whenever the Heatles were a thing back in the early 2010s with LeBron and Wade and Bosch that Pat Riley, regardless of your superstar status, expected you to come to work, and they worked harder than anybody. And Eric Spolstra, as their head coach now for a number of years, bought into that system. Jimmy Butler is the perfect fit for this Miami team. He has really brought this He's helped to bring out this culture that Pat Riley wants to wants to foster. He brought over this incredible work ethic, whether you saw it in Chicago with him leading the league in minutes, getting screwed by the Chicago front office and not actually getting to – I believe the front office, the report came out that um, 
Garpax actually even told Tom Thibodeau, the coach at the time, to bench Jimmy Butler so that they could potentially re-sign him for less money. And Tom Thibodeau basically said, a giant screw you to the front office. I'm not going to tank one of my players' seasons just for your the sake of your money. Butler going to Minnesota, leaving because he couldn't get that culture instilled because some of the young players, Andrew Wiggins and Carl Anthony Towns, were not willing to make that uh, that kind of sacrifice. And kind of the same case in Philadelphia, seeing some of these young players that don't want to buy into the same degree. But he has not found that in Miami. In Miami, they've found a team willing to buy fully in to this incredible level of work ethic, and it has really started to pay big dividends for them. Miami, not just with... Uh, not just with Kendrick Nunn, not just with Jimmy Butler, not with Duncan Robinson, not with Tyler Hero. You look at someone like Goran Dragic, a guy who got relegated to the bench and has been drastically rewarded for it, still averaging over 16 points a game and five assists, coming off the bench, still getting almost 30 minutes a game as their sixth man and has been a major piece for them thus far. And then the player that not a soul is talking about unless you're named Zach Lowe, or not talking enough about, because people at least know the name, is Bam Adebayo, the power forward slash center for the Miami Heat. The absolute prototypical big man for the year 2020, albeit without a little bit of shooting that you might like from more of a stretch five guy. But Bam Adebayo can do everything. He's consistent. He's he, Injuries are really an issue for him. Starting to elevate his scoring the longer he's been in the league, up to about 16 points a game now, averaging a double-double, 10.5 rebounds a game, and is starting to further his passing, now sitting right at five assists a game over a steal a game, over a block. Not a guy who turns the ball over a lot. Not a guy who fouls a lot. Bam Adebayo has been one of their absolute stud playmakers over the course of this season. Liken him almost to a Draymond Green when the Warriors were really, maybe not quite the playmaker that Draymond was, but that kind of Swiss Army knife is capable of doing everything at a high level, Bam also being a very strong defender. And Miami, while they might not be able to out-talent Milwaukee, and they might not necessarily have all the pieces they would like to defend Giannis, although that would be that, that is helped in bringing in someone like Andre Iguodala, who they acquired at the, acquired at the trade deadline, as well as Jay Crowder from the Memphis Grizzlies. This team is well situated to perhaps give Milwaukee a run for their money if the pieces fall right, barring injury over the rest of the season. If Jimmy Butler is able to keep in the shape that he's in and keep having the season that's been going, hopefully these young players are able to keep on the role that they've been, and maybe the playoff lights won't actually be a little too big for them. And then finally, the last team I'd like to talk about, only because I have to, are the Philadelphia 76ers, a team that I honestly can't stand watching, not because of anything on the court, but because I am distinctly tired of the incredibly on-display every-night immaturity from, and, and not even just on the court, but off it, from Ben Simmons and from Joel Embiid. On paper, they should be right there, right there with Milwaukee. Between Simmons, Embiid, Tobias Harris, and Al Horford, they have talent across the board, even acquiring Josh Richardson from Miami this last season to try to fill out that shooting guard spot. They should be the best defense in the league, and they're right there, second in points in game, excuse me, points per game at 106.2. But the dynamic between Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons is going to ensure they will never win a championship while both of them play for the same team. They're too immature. Neither of them is willing to take on the full leadership role, the full, I am going to be the guy, 
we are losing right now. You know, the, the, the ship is perhaps astray. Put it on my back and I will get it done. Both of them seem more interested in being a celebrity than in being an NBA legend. Sitting at 35 and 21 right now, and honestly, they have the talent that sh they should be sitting well over 40 wins. They should be sitting minimum at the number two seed right now and chasing Milwaukee for that number one seed. I don't care for Philadelphia only because of these maturity issues. I think people have started to see that Brett Brown is perhaps not the coach of the future for them. And the fact that, as I was talking about earlier, with Giannis evolving his game to add that perimeter jumper and Ben Simmons absolutely refusing to. I don't care what they've been saying on some of these bigger networks. People saying, oh, well, Simmons could shoot. Just wait for the playoffs. He'll do it. Okay. That history is not agreeing with you. You're, you're relying on a guy. It's almost like the Kyrie Irving thing. People are giving him the benefit of the doubt that he doesn't deserve. When you can prove that you can be a good leader, you can prove that you can shoot from the perimeter, I will give you that benefit of the doubt. However, when you refuse to, to the detriment of your team, almost like Rajon Rondo used to back when he was playing for the Boston Celtics, I'm not going to give you that benefit of the doubt. I'm not going to give you the credit that you don't deserve until you can actually prove it to me. And going forward into this postseason, it will be interesting to see, now with all this talent here, not a lot of excuses, and Ben Simmons still having a strong season, scoring well and being one of the best individual defenders in the NBA, we're going to have to see if going into the postseason, if the Sixers will actually be able to put this together for at least one season, and if not, if they decide moving forward, which one of these two might have to be moved. On the whole, I still expect Milwaukee to be sitting in the NBA Finals when all is said and done. But the top end and this middle chunk of the Eastern Conference is considerably stronger than it has been in years past. It remains to be seen exactly how that will change heading into the postseason. And finally, for our last small segment... I would like to talk a little bit of baseball with you guys because the big story right now across Major League Baseball being the handling of the Astros signed ceiling scandal by the commissioner's office and specifically MLB commissioner Rob Manfred. Now, I'm going to try my best not to rant about this, but guys, guys and gals, this, is, this has been shameful on approximately every level. For those who don't know, the Houston Astros who have been – perennial World Series contenders for the last several years, even winning one, the Astros were found, were ratted out by essentially a former pitcher, Mike Fires, for stealing signs with a camera that was put into one of the outfield walls, so stealing signs only during their home games, and that camera feed was relayed to a computer inside the clubhouse. And as the, uh, as the signs were coming in, as the pitches were being tipped, or as these, these things are being found out. Whoever was running that feed and running the computer that the camera was running to would use a bat and bang on a trash can to try to signal audibly over the, the raucous noise of the crowd to the hitter what the next pitch was going to be. The rumors even started coming out that perhaps Astros players were even wearing buzzers underneath their jerseys to get signals from whoever was running this computer. Obviously, at face value, one of the most shameful things we've heard in recent memory. Stealing signs has been a thing for a long time in baseball, but it's almost become a skill. You, you have a manager or you have a player at second who, in, in just, uh, just a flash, just in the blink of an eye, has to try to interpret whatever signs are being laid down by the catcher and, and quickly, while they're out there, try to find a way to relay that. But then they at least have to, to vocalize it. They have to, you know, yell to the, yell to the, the, the 
the hitter at the plate. You know, it's, it's a heater coming. Oh, there's watch out for the curve. There's at least some kind of back and forth there. But when you are starting to involve technology that other teams can't replicate, when you are starting to bring in this added third element, this extra part where you are, you are actively spying on the enemy team and trying to circumvent the rules in such a fashion in a way that other teams can't replicate, this becomes one of the most despicable things that we've seen in recent memory. And the story, that, that story has obviously all happened over the course of time. The big thing right now is players being viciously angry with Commissioner Rob Manfred for choosing to not punish the players who were actively involved on the condition, effectively, that they help with the investigation. And as a result, um, the general manager from Houston got fired. Manager A.J. Hinch was fired. Even Carlos Beltran, who was a player during that time uh, and thus retired and became the manager of the New York Mets, was fired before ever managing a game for the Mets for his role in it. Alex Cora also someone who was in the Houston dugout during these years and was kind of was kind of seen as the ringleader of this cheating scandal, very quickly fired from his job with the Boston Red Sox. But the issue goes much deeper than just fire a couple executives or a couple managers. Josh Turner, a player from the LA Dodgers, said this very well the other day after Rob Manfred, again, this is just ridiculous to me, tried to essentially devalue the complaints towards him by saying, oh, it's just a piece of metal in referring to the World Series trophy. Trying to say to these Astros fans or some of these people saying that the, or not, I'm sorry, Dodgers fans, trying to say that the Astros should be, they should be stripped of their title and saying it's only a piece of metal. Josh Turner from the LA Dodgers saying, I don't, the commissioner is proving, I'm paraphrasing, of course, saying the commissioner is proving he's not only not won anything in his life, but he also is incredibly disconnected from Major League Baseball and particularly from the players. And Josh Turner, with one of the great sound bites in recent memory in baseball, because we don't get many of them, saying the only thing devaluing the commissioner's trophy right now, again, that being the name of the World Series trophy, the only thing devaluing that trophy is the fact that it says commissioner on it. And that's one of the most gold sound bites I have heard from baseball in a long time, not generally being a sport with incendiary remarks and personalities. The issue that this sets is because it creates a precedent for future issues like this. Because by not punishing players, by saying it, oh, if you just help us with the investigation, tell us who the big ringleaders were, we'll let you get off scot-free. This tells players, especially when executives and managers are the only ones losing their job, because it, it sets a horrible example because to them, they won. By not stripping the title, by not being banned from the postseason, by only having some of these higher-level guys get fired, you're telling players, well, it was all worth it. Because no matter what happened, we came out champions, and we have rings and a World Series trophy to prove it. So regardless of who else lost their job, regardless of what else happened outside of it, regardless of public perception, we were champions. What I think the Astros players in particular are not realizing is that baseball isn't like football and isn't like basketball. Obviously, both of those sports have their traditions, have their superstitions, have their 
historical methods of remembrance, if you will. But baseball is singular in the fact that people remember baseball history to such a degree that sometimes it's scary. Baseball fans, especially in the era we live in now, it's hard to be a casual baseball fan. Really, if you're a baseball fan, you almost wind up being diehard by default. And you have guys in one moment being able to become legendary. Being a Cardinals fan myself, let me just, I mean, you guys could tell easily if you watched the 2011 World Series, David Freeze almost didn't play for the Cardinals the rest of his career after that because he wound up being shipped around to other teams. But because of his performance in the 2011 World Series, David Freeze will never pay for a drink in St. Louis again. He will be a hero in St. Louis the rest of his life because of what he did in 2011, but it works on the flip side. When you, and I'll even give you a different example of it, being a baseball fan for a long time myself, and some of my listeners that I remember watching these games with might remember what I'm talking about, but I never had an issue with a guy like Jose Tabata, the guy who used to play for Pittsburgh, until one summer that I watched Max Scherzer almost throw a perfect game on one hot summer day, I was watching with my eyes glued to the TV. I could not stop watching every single pitch. I'm thinking this is going to be history that I'm watching right now. And Jose Tabata ruins the perfect game by very clearly leaning and ducking into a hit-by-pitch, which the umpire obviously did not see properly and ruled incorrectly as a hit-by-pitch rather than he didn't try to get out of the way. And, the, and history was gone. That perfect game for Max Scherzer wound up not happening. And because of that, I have always held, <laughs> I won't say i won't say hatred, that seems a little hostile, but I've always held this disdain for Jose Tabata, no matter what he's done in his career, because of one moment like that. And I think that's what the Astros players are missing out on in this entire situation they find themselves in. As much as they might want to say, oh, well, history will still show that we were champions and we probably would have still won without it. I think Max Kellerman was the one who said it earlier today. You lose the right to say that once you've cheated. You lose the right to say we would have won anyway once you you couldn't perform without that. And if you look at the home and road splits, it was obviously one of the most drastic advantages of any team in the, or in the MLB. But they're losing sight of the fact that baseball fans and baseball history is not the same as football and basketball. People remember. They remember the way that you make them feel. And this isn't the same as the the Balco case and the steroid scandal or the Pete Rose incident and the, the travesty that is Pete Rose still being out of Major League Baseball and not being in the Hall of Fame. This is different from all of those particularly from the steroid case where everyone thought, oh, well, there might be like five guys on our team who are doing this or half the team might be doing this, but it's really just affecting them right here. This was a coordinated effort from an entire franchise across the board. Every player coordinating themselves to retain an advantage at home that could not be replicated by anyone across the league. And again, like I just said, if you look at the home and road splits between Astros players, particularly in the postseason in their past several World Series runs, it is so drastic you can almost compare it to the home and road splits between Colorado Rockies players, which every year 
he wind up having such a big split because Rockies players, I mean, this is an old adage of, of baseball, but you hit better in Colorado because the air is so thin that the ball travels further. So home and road splits are always drastically skewed towards better performance at home for Rockies players. It was almost the same thing for Astros players, again, particularly in these postseason series. So obviously it was a major advantage. And seeing Jim Crane, the owner of the team, coming out and saying something like, well, we don't feel that it affected the games really, is one of the most tone-deaf and ignorant things I've ever heard a baseball executive say. And Rob Manfred coming out and choosing to not punish players for this, the ones who instituted this, even though Alex Cora and Carlos Beltran were gone from the team, clearly players like Jose Altuve, Carlos Correa, Alex Bregman were a major part of this scandal. And their apologies were horrendous, by the way. If you need to go check out the videos for those, they were absolutely terrible. It was some of the worst apologies I've seen for something like this in history. Baseball will not forget this. And even though there might not be a physical asterisk on their championship, there will be one for baseball fans across America. To a lot of people, myself included, Houston Astros are not champions. They are not World Series champions. And I'm not saying hand that to the Dodgers or hand that, you know, hand that appearance to the Yankees or anything like that. I'm saying for that year, for all intents and purposes, there was not a champion. Sorry, Houston. That's not the way that this works. Because sports are only valuable because of the value fans place on them. I understand, you know, you think you're a billion-dollar industry that's bigger than all these fans. You don't have to listen to all this stuff. These sports don't exist without the fan bases that support them. And if fans don't value you as a player or what you've done, then it doesn't have value. That's the way that that works. So when you come out and say, we don't think we affected the game, or you give a terrible apology, or you basically, under Rob Manfred's lack of punishment, say, it was all worth it because we got a championship, that championship has no value. The effort that you did put in that year, because they are still a very talented team that performed well, the effort you did put in that year has no value in the annals of human and baseball history. And going forward, I think Houston is going to see that. Houston players are going to be in, a, in for a rude awakening this season because regardless of what Rob Manford wants to tell people, Houston players are getting hit by pitches this year. And they, they had better be prepared for that. I obviously, I, I'm not advocating for someone to be hit by a pitch. I'm not saying Manfred shouldn't be uh, trying to dissuade players from doing that. But I'm saying if I'm, a, if I'm a professional baseball pitcher and I'm coming up against Houston, oh, oh that, they're getting hit. That's how it's going. Because that's, the core, that's one of the core things of baseball is players being able to police themselves. And if Rob Manfred wants to retain this job for much longer, because his first several years after replacing Bud Seeley have been terrible and has been has shown an incredible lack of awareness in moving baseball forward into this century, he had better start turning this kind of stuff around quick because if he already can't connect with fans. If you can't connect with players and you even lose the support of someone like Mike Trout, the face of baseball, you're not long for your job. Thank you guys all very much for listening. I appreciate the listenership I have had so so far, and I have been greatly enjoying my time 
bringing this podcast back. Whether you are listening on Apple Podcasts, if you're listening on Google Play, if you're listening on Radio Public, any platform, if you check the episode description below, there will be a link for you to leave me voice messages if you want to give shout-outs, if you want to leave questions for me to answer on the podcast I would be happy to do so. Just click on that link, leave me a voice message, and I can even include your clip in the podcast itself. Once again, I'm Nick. Thank you again for listening. And those are your unanswered points.